Good evening, everyone. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 8, the 8th Psalm. It's been good to be with you on uh, this Lord's Day to worship, and uh, I've really enjoyed getting to see some of you again that I haven't seen in a while, and I'm just glad to meet some new folks this this morning, and I'm just thankful for the opportunity. Um, I want to do something tonight that is simple, but I, I hope uh, is helpful and profound. Um, I'm going to look at three passages of Scripture and how they go together. Uh, this one in Psalm 8 is actually the middle or the pivot of the three passages. By the time we're done, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at Psalm 8. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2. All of which were written... Um, with hundreds and hundreds of years between them. But what's beautiful about scripture sometimes is that people who didn't know each other, who lived in different times and different places, could write about the same things and it would make perfect sense uh, as time went on. All of these passages are powerful in, in and of themselves, but they really make sense of each other when you look at them together. Uh, And you'll see by the time we're done why these three passages are very important to us as Christians. In a way, or in one way, uh, it's the description of our salvation. It's a way to think of what God's done for us in our lives and understand our Savior uh, in a better way. Let's start by reading Psalm 8 together, um, and then we'll make some observations about that. Psalm Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Now this psalm of David, uh, I think you can almost picture him, can't you? As maybe a a young shepherd uh, sleeping out under the stars, looking at the world around him and enjoying the creation of God. And just beginning to think about how that creation showed the majesty of God. I hope what jumped off the page for you at the beginning was... How verse 1 and verse 9 bookend the psalm. Notice that again. He starts and ends by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Just think about why that was a significant thing to say for uh, a Jewish man. Uh, Many people would have thought that God's name, Jehovah's name, was great in Israel. That people would have known his magnificence there. But David proclaims that his majesty is known or made known. God makes it known in all the earth, not just in one location, but that everywhere where the sun and the moon and the stars shine, God's name should be known. 
You remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul will write that even the Gentile nations, even people that could see the creation of God should have known. They were without excuse to know that God was great. And David here seems to be saying, God, whenever I look or wherever I look, your majesty is seen. Now, notice something else about this. You have David saying in verse 1 that God had displayed his splendor or his majesty above the heavens. Like when David looked up and saw all the expanse, he could see God's glory and majesty. I want you to notice, though, that when we get to around verse 5, David includes mankind in that. It's like he was looking up and seeing the glory and majesty of God. But then when he looked at himself and he looked at the other people, he realized that God had taken that glory and that majesty and put it down below and shared it with us. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. Um, Have you ever noticed in the Bible that whenever you read about the angels or the heavenly beings praising God and talking about God's majesty... They talk about him in very grand ways, don't they? Like Isaiah chapter 6 or Revelation chapter 5. They'll say things like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But they do something different than we do. When we praise God, we usually look up at the heavens and say, look at God's glory. But do you remember what they said in Isaiah 6? They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole, what? earth is full of his glory like while we're looking up they're looking down and when they look down they praise god for what's going on below isn't that interesting we sing songs of heaven they sing songs of earth look at revelation 5 sometime when those beings and those elders and all those around the throne begin to sing about the lamb of god they sing about what he did here not what he's doing there necessarily but that he purchased with his own blood from among men people So this is an interesting kind of thing to notice in the psalm. David is looking up, thinking of God's majesty, but then he's looking around and understanding that God shared that glory with us. Uh, Let's kind of read a little bit more, notice some things. Look at verse 2 there. In verse 2, David says, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Do you recognize that verse from the New Testament at all? If you've got footnotes or a good Bible that kind of points you to some other places, you'll recognize that from Matthew chapter 21. Uh, And I'll just kind of briefly tell the story of how Jesus used this. You remember when Jesus finally got to Jerusalem and they laid down their palm branches and they took off their cloaks and He rode in on a donkey colt. Do you remember that scene? And they were all praising him. And they were all talking about Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees and the scribes were upset with that. And told Jesus, hey, you tell your disciples to keep quiet. They shouldn't talk like this. Do you remember what Jesus said on that occasion? He said, "They, they can't really be silent. But even if they were silent... He said the stones would cry out. Remember that? It's kind of an interesting thought. But the way this verse is used is once Jesus got into Jerusalem in Matthew 21, the Bible tells us that as he was going around the temple complex, 
lame, crippled people begin to come to him and proclaim his excellencies. And then it specifies that children came to him and began to praise him. Now this bothered the leadership in Jerusalem as well. So again, they rebuked him and said, hey, cause this to stop. And Jesus said, haven't you ever read Psalm 8 verse 2, essentially? Haven't you ever read where God said, through the mouth of babes and infants, he would establish praise for himself, or he would cause praise to come? Why is that valuable? I don't believe, by the way, that this is being literal. Obviously, infants and nursing babies can't speak. This might be a reference to the children of Israel and their smallness being those that proclaim God. But let me just get you to think about this. Have you ever as a Christian, or just as a person, felt really small in the world. Like you didn't make much of an impact. You know, there are the people that everybody notices, there are the people that everybody's attention is on, but you didn't feel like you were doing much in the world. Now think about a verse like this. That God decided that for people like us, the humble ones, the nobodies, that The God of heaven and earth would be proclaimed through our mouths. What a beautiful thought that is. And he includes that in the list of things that are bringing glory and honor to God. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3, he says, When I consider your heavens, uh, the works of your fingers, the the moon, the stars which you have ordained. You know, I've always wondered, did David have a sense of how big the universe really was? You know, as he laid out there under the Jerusalem sky or the Bethlehem sky or the Judean sky, did he understand what we understand now about the number of stars? Uh, I remember I preached this text one time uh, out in Oregon, in uh, Salem, Oregon. Fairly liberal state. I was in a public school, actually, that we um, had had a meeting in there with some of the youth. And on one of their boards, they actually had written, um, and I don't think they had anything to do with God at all, but they had written on their board for the children, did you realize that there are more stars in the sky than there are sands on the seashores? You ever thought about that? Like how vast the universe is and how many stars there are. And David says, when I think about that, it's amazing to me what? What's his point in verse 4? That you notice us. That you think about us. And it's not just that you think about us, it's that you care for us. Not only are you, you know, you pay attention to the fact that we exist, but you love us and wonder about us and you care for us. Again, have you ever felt small when you looked at the universe and the expanse? Now, David says more here in verse 5. When he's thinking of the grandeur of all of this, he says, you've made him, that's mankind, uh, you've made him a little lower than God and you've crowned him with glory and majesty. Well, this is interesting. I mean, David had just got through saying that God was majestic, but now he says, but God, what you did when you made us is you like put a crown on our head And you crowned us with majesty here on the earth. Like we're something special here. Well, what does he mean? Look at verse 6. Verse 6, he says, You made him or you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. 
All sheep and oxen, beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So David says, God, you're the ruler of the universe, but you shared with us that glory and majesty. You made us rulers here on earth, and you gave us charge of all this creation. Let me ask you a question. How do you think we've done as mankind in ruling over the world? Do you think we've done well? What if we just took the list of things here? How have we done with ruling over sheep, oxen, animals, birds? You know, you can go just about anywhere and find those in cages, can't you? Zoos and people keep them as pets. If I gave you the right tools, you could subdue just about anything in this world, couldn't you? I mean, we're the kings of the earth. And I know that there's all kinds of discussion about the responsibilities of that. But David just seems to be contemplating that we've done and we've been given all this charge. What a wonderful thought it is. Now, eventually, there's going to be a commentary in Hebrews about this passage. But I'll, I'll preempt it a little bit. When I asked you a minute ago, how have we done ruling over the world? Some of you kind of wondered about that for a minute. Because if you go out into the streets and into the neighborhood and you look at the way we treat each other, would you say that we're doing well, ruling over everything like we should? Keep that thought. Let's go back to Genesis 1, where most of these thoughts actually come from. David seems to be singing about the observations, but he's thinking also about the beginning of Scripture and what it was that God did for mankind in the beginning. So let's look here in Genesis chapter 1, starting around verse 26. Verse 26 of Genesis 1 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, you created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given you every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, do you believe that when David was singing his psalm, and he was thinking about God crowning man with glory and majesty, that he was thinking about this passage? Who is man? What did God do when he made us? According to this God said that he made us in his image. Now, I don't believe that really has anything to do with our flesh and blood or our physicality. Because he made us male and female in his image. There has to be something more to this than just the way we look. I believe that if you look in chapter 2 and 
you think more about the creation story, there seems to be something different that God does when He breathes into man the breath of life. That He gives mankind a a way about them that is different than anything else. But this concept that we were made in the image of God, is this important? I grew up um, in the public school system. I was always kind of interested in the way we were learning in Southern California. We would go to biology class and we would be told you're nothing more than like this mutation that came from some slime pit, you know, millions of years ago and it turned into this and it turned into this and turned into this. But this is your origin. This is who you are. Um, You've evolved into this. You know, it's funny that we're growing up in a time where that's the prevailing attitude. But you know what had to happen in the public school systems with most of the people I knew? They had to go from biology class to the counselor to talk about why their life didn't matter much and who they really were. And they had to see their therapist to have any value about them at all. Why is that? I'll tell you what the devil wants to attack. If the devil can convince mankind that they are not in the image of God, that they don't belong to him, then we're going to have every kind of trouble, always. Have you ever met somebody that didn't think very highly of themselves? They weren't worth anything at all. What's the truth to tell somebody like that? Well, eventually we're going to get to the point where we say, yeah, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but here's, here is the first part of the story. You are made in the image of God. You're a child of God. You're crowned with glory and majesty. You're His, and you share His glory. Now, again, let's go back to what David was celebrating in Psalm 8. We were supposed to rule over the world, master everything. And I asked you earlier, how have we done with that? Turn with me just a couple of pages in your Bible to chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. And I want to show you a conversation that God had with some of the first inhabitants of the earth. Cain and Abel. Um, there in verse 4. Now, obviously we could spend some time talking about the fall of humanity in chapter 3. And how mankind didn't live up to their, their rule in the Garden of Eden. They didn't do very well there. But here's some language I want you to notice. It says in verse 1, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. 
Now this story of Cain and Abel, you've heard this hundreds of times perhaps. But you know, it took me maybe hundreds of times of hearing the story for me to finally see a couple of things in this story. Number one, what was the problem here with the sacrifices? I've always thought this is an important story at the beginning of the Bible. This was not, this isn't a story of one person who loved God and one person who hated God. That's not what this story is about. This is a story about two worshipers. So when the Bible begins with a story of two worshipers, here's what we should learn. Not all worship to God is acceptable. Not all worshipers of God are accepted. That we've got to pay attention when we come to God, to come to God with the right heart, and with the right attitude, with the right spirit, with the right faith, or else our worship could be vain. That's going to be a repeated theme throughout the whole scripture. But here's what I missed for a long time. Have you ever heard the arguments in Bible class? What was wrong with um, Cain's offering? You know, was it because it was fruit of the ground? Was it not the best? Like, should it have been blood sacrifice? Have you ever heard all those arguments? I don't know all the answers to this. But something that finally occurred to me, look there again at verse uh, verse 4. At the end of verse 4, it says, The Lord had regard, listen close, for Abel and his offering. And in the next verse, God did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So we can get into arguments about the offering itself, but the problem really was with the person. Now, once this all shakes out, you've got Cain angry, and God says this to him. Listen, Cain, sin is right there crouching at the door. Just like an animal. You know those beasts that I told you to conquer and to tame? Sin is like that. It wants to eat you alive. But what's his instruction? You must master it. Do you remember what James tells us in the New Testament? Every manner of animal, every manner of beast has been tamed by men. You agree? Like, what have we not conquered? But do you remember in the book of James what he said, none of us have been able to figure out how to conquer? Our tongue. What about our anger? Let me ask this a different way. Has there ever been anything in your life that seemed to have control of you and you didn't have control of it? Like the world was overcoming you, you weren't overcoming the world. And the problem wasn't with something external, it was with something in you. It was something that you wrestled with and you couldn't find the way to subdue it. Anybody ever had that happen? Isn't that a way to describe sin? You see, when God told us to rule over the creation, I'm part of that. This tongue, this mind... My body, my hands, my feet. Some of the things that the Proverbs would say God hates when the feet go to the wrong place and the hands touch the wrong things and the tongue speaks the wrong words. Those are part of the creation of God that I was meant to subdue. Now, when David's singing in Psalm 8, he doesn't mention any of that. He just talks about the great place God gave us. But in the New Testament, Paul makes this statement in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory 
of God. And as far as I can tell, when I rack my brain to understand that sentence, the only thing that I can think is that the idea of that is God made us a certain way. He put a crown on our head. He gave us this wonderful gift of being partakers of His glory and majesty. And at some point in all of our lives, we took the crown off. And we fell short of the glory of what we were made to be. Now here's the Bible question. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to fix that? How do we regain Eden? How do we become partakers of the divine nature that once was given, but we walked away from? So let's now go to Hebrews chapter 2. I believe this is one of the things the Hebrew writer does very well. Uh, this, this isn't the only time that he'll use Genesis and Psalms to make like an amazing point. Uh, one of the other great ones is the story of um, Melchizedek. In the book of Genesis, you have a, a king, the king of Salem, the king of peace, whose name means the king of righteousness who is greater than Abraham because he blesses Abraham, who comes out and gives him uh, bread and wine after Abraham has been uh, in a battle. And in all this story, Melchizedek sort of disappears until you get to the Psalms hundreds of years later. And the psalmist writes about him in Psalm 110. And then the Hebrew writer brings him up again at the end of the Bible and says, here's what all of this means. This is very similar. You've got Genesis 1, Psalm 8, and Hebrews 2. So let's read a little. Starting in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one is testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjecting all things to him. He left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. Now, let me point something out about this passage. This passage gets misread sometimes. Um, And I've gotten myself into trouble when I've taught this passage, if I'm not careful about it. Um, But please give me a moment, if you're somebody who's read this a certain way, to challenge you. In this section that we just read, there's no mention of Jesus. When it speaks of the man that was crowned with glory and honor and subjecting all things to him, look there at verse 8. Um, there's nothing that's not subject to him. Those hymns in, those, in that verse, that's not Jesus. Not yet. That's us. The point that's being made by the Hebrew writer is the same point that was being made by David. God gave us, mankind, not angels, the world. And he made us to rule over all those things. But here's the commentary after the quote. Look at the end of verse 8. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, mankind, us. Because we've made a mess of this. We're going to say a little bit more about what we haven't subdued. But now let's read the section that begins to bring all of this together. Starting in verse 9. 
But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see the contrast? Verses uh, 5 through 8, talking about mankind, the commentary is, we didn't do our job. We didn't subject everything like we were supposed to. But verse 9 is the contrast. But we see Him who stepped into the same shoes we have, the same body. He partook in the same thing as us. But what did He do different than us? Look at verse 9 again. He was crowned with glory and honor. Now that's what David said once was ours. God had crowned us with glory and honor. But we had taken our crowns off and thrown them away. Do you know who Jesus is? I mean, there's all kinds of ways to answer this question. Jesus is the champion of humanity. He is the only one who's ever done what mankind was supposed to do. And if it wasn't for our champion, we'd have no hope at all. You couldn't count on me, I couldn't count on you. There is something so beautiful about this passage that helps us make sense of who we were at the beginning and what it was that David was singing about. And the answer is Jesus was doing something. Well, what was he doing? Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. If I could get you to just notice that phrase in verse 10, bringing many sons to glory. Folks, there's no more beautiful way to describe our salvation than that. Because that's who we were originally made to be. The glorified children of God, living with God in a paradise, in relationship, made in His image. But every one of us, once again, fell short. We gave it up. We took our crown off. But what we needed was somebody to come down and bring us back to the place where we were intended. Time out for a minute. I don't know how you try to preach the gospel to people. I don't know what kind of ways you talk to them. But I'll tell you something, this simple study, I've done this with countless people who didn't know anything about God. And it's been one of the things that's captured them the most. Because here's what I believe everybody has a sense of in their self, in their life. They believe somewhere deep down inside, maybe it's that phrase in Ecclesiastes, that eternity is in them. That they're more than just some slime ball that came out of the ooze and made their way. No, we've got a sense that there's something to us. That's why when somebody gets angry enough, they, they take a gun to school and shoot people up and they, they throw their weight around in any way they can because they know there's something about dominion in them. But they're not an animal. Who are they? Folks, if you can learn to share the story of being made in the image of God, you'll see people's eyes light up. You'll find the people who've lost hope have a glimmer of hope. And then it's amazing to just simply ask them, have you lived up to what you were made to be? And they'll say with 
Total confidence. No, I'm not. I've fallen short. I know that I'm not all that I ought to be. And you know what they're hungry for now when you can lay that out? They need a Savior. They need hope. They need somebody to take them to glory. So keep reading. Verse 11 says, For both you sanctifies, and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. How does that make you feel, by the way? I mean, when the text says that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have the same father, like we're all from one. And that when Jesus thinks about me and you, he's not ashamed to say, there's my brother. There he is. I think that's beautiful. But let's notice why this is in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's begin to wrap this up. The point that's being made about our Savior is that in order for him to have any hope of saving us, he had to walk in flesh and blood. He had to become like us. You know, in Hebrews chapter 1, the argument is made that he's greater than the angels. You remember that argument? To which of the angels did he ever say these wonderful things? Only to Jesus, he was greater than the angels, meaning he was God. But in chapter 2, the argument changes to for a little while he was made lower than the angels. He was made like us. Why? Because if I'm going to be saved, I need somebody who's got both things. Power and sympathy. I don't know if you identify with this, but I've got debt in my life. I owe the bank money for my house. Some of you have sympathy for me, don't you? But for whatever reason, you're not going to help me pay my house off. (laughs) Probably because you don't have the power to do it. I know some other people who've got the power to do it. They got all kinds of money. But for whatever reason, they lack the sympathy to do it. You know what we need in a Savior? Is both. And the point that's being made about our Savior is He was willing. He was willing to leave the place of glory that He was to come down with us and show us what it meant to really wear the crown of glory and majesty. But to subdue what we couldn't subdue. And what was the final thing? I mean, if mankind has messed up one thing in particular that God gave us dominion over, do you know what it really was? Life. 
There we were in the garden, the tree that would make us live forever in fellowship with God. And we couldn't even hold on to that. So you know what we needed? Somebody who could taste death for everyone. And then come out of the grave and say, I've conquered. I've subdued it. Glory can be now given to you. Does that give you hope? Does it? Maybe that's too big. It's too uh, far away. So read the last verse again. Verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You know, this discussion of the glory of God being given to us and Jesus being our champion and bringing many sons to glory, it's not just someday, someday God's going to glorify us. That's not all it is. That verse reads like he's here to help right now. So I want to do this with you before we finish. How many of you earlier when I said, have you ever had a, a sin in your life that you couldn't seem to conquer on your own? Like it, it had you gripped. Was there anybody that didn't know what I was talking about? So answer this question. How many of you had something in your life before that you couldn't fix? You couldn't figure out. It kept beating you. But then you came to the Lord. And you listened to Him. And you obeyed His invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And let me ask you, did He subdue it for you? Did He bring you to glory in that thing? Did He help you master it like Cain was supposed to? How many of you would say yes to that? Would you? Uh, Thank God. Because you know what He's showing us? That's what He's here to do. In everything, in every way. In every one of those victories, in every one of those beasts that we subdue, God eventually will show us that He'll put all things in subjection under the feet of the Messiah and His people. Thanks for your attention tonight. I want to encourage you to think about the images of Scripture that spread through the Scripture. Find ways to share these with people who've never heard who they really are and what it is that Jesus came to do. Um, And let's be encouraged by who we we have as our Savior because of what He's done. Let's go ahead and sing a song together if we can encourage you to respond to the Gospel or if you need prayers from us tonight. Let's stand and sing.